Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I preach, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Would you please, please bow your heads with me just for a moment, and we'll ask the Lord to bless our morning. Father, you've already blessed us through singing, through the songs that we've been able to uh, give back to you as praise and worship. We thank you for this time that we can come together and try to learn from your word. We know that we can't do it apart from your spirit moving within us to open our eyes to this truth. Paul wrote these words inspired by your spirit, and we need your spirit to move now to help us understand what Paul meant. We pray now as we take a few moments to contemplate what Paul means, that you would help us. We want to learn, we want to grow, we want to be more like Jesus. So we pray that in these moments you would help us to focus on your word and to give glory to you as we read. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a common phrase that's found in Paul. He uses it uh, in many of his letters. And he refers to the Corinthian church as brothers and sisters 22 times in this letter. He also calls them dear children uh, in chapter 4 and dear friends in chapter 10. These are loving and endearing terms that uh, is written to a people who Paul identifies back in chapter 1, verse 2, as the church of God in Corinth. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Why point that out? Why, why would it be significant to remember as we begin reading chapter 15, we're jumping in at the end of this letter, why is that significant? The answer is because of what is found in the first 14 chapters of this letter. And if you've been keeping up with uh, the Bible reading program that we've been going through, you've already read, I think we're, did we finish Corinthians yet? Anybody know? 
We're pretty close to the end. We're in chapter 15 or 16. So, so you read, you read the first 13 chapters. And, and what's in there? What is coming there? There's one big mess of a congregation in Corinth. They are a mess. <laughs> chapter after chapter brings issue after issue. There's one problem after another. And these issues, and if we're going to be honest with the text, and if we're going to be honest with the Bible, the Bible just calls it sin. We sometimes tag on these different little phrases, issues, problems, things to overcome. And the Bible just calls them sin. This is actually pretty bad, too. The Corinthians don't appear to be all about sanctified in Jesus Christ, as Paul initially states at the beginning of the letter. There's division of the leadership. There's sexual immorality, incest. There's lawsuits against one another. There's more sexual immorality found in prostitution. There's couples misusing sex within marriage. Some have caused other believers to fall into sin because of what they're eating, and they don't care. They abuse the Lord's Supper. These aren't small things. The Corinthian church was really a mess. They had a lot of problems, and yet they are still the church of God, loved by Paul, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, either Paul is lying when he says that, he's buttering them up to soften the blow, or he's telling the truth. All of their problems, all of their shortcomings, all of their failures and sins did not negate their status as Church of God redeemed by Jesus Christ. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. First reason being, the Corinthian Church is not disqualified from salvation. They're not disqualified from being in Jesus Christ because Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. So you see all of the problems that the Corinthian Church has, and we should go, those are the kind of people that Jesus came to save. Lost and broken people are precisely the people Jesus came and died for. Messed up people are the people Jesus came to redeem. That, that's what the Corinthian church is, and that's the kind of people that Jesus came for. Second reason being their salvation, which Paul is about to elaborate on, he's about to get into that a little bit more, has never relied on their actions. It's never relied on their works. The gospel is Paul preached, which they received. Paul says, you actually received this. You heard and took it in. You've taken their stand on this gospel. It, it's never relied on their ability to avoid sin. Paul never preached, here's the gospel. And, and the condition of standing in that gospel, or standing on this gospel, of being in Jesus Christ, is your ability to avoid sin. God didn't set up a here's like in your own kind of system in Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel Paul preached. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. We all know that verse. Repentance and faith in Jesus saves, not your ability to stay away from all of the bad things. We, as, as Christ-like, as individuals, as Christians here in the 21st century, we should be encouraged by Paul's treatment of the Corinthian church. We should be encouraged when Paul calls them brothers and sisters in spite of all their issues because we're not perfect either. Because although we may not have the same issues or on, in our minds the same level of sins, we, we all don't do the exact same things the Corinthian church was guilty of. We're messed up too. We've got problems. We've got issues. And we don't even need to get into specifics. We don't even have to start pinpointing, well, you did this and you did this and you've got that problem. All you have to do is just step back 
and be honest with yourself, take an honest, deep look at your own heart and life, and I think we quickly see that we're not where we're supposed to be either. We look at the Corinthian church and we go, man, they were messed up, and they are nowhere near what Jesus was. They are nowhere near what Paul was. They are nowhere near what Sam McCallum was. You know? But, but we step back and we go, wait a minute, I'm not all that different from them. Maybe they struggle with these things, but I've got my own problems too. And the reason Paul can say these things, the reason these people are not disqualified from salvation is because Paul has one big, massive, gigantic view of Christ. He's got a big view of who Jesus is and what he did. There's this ever-present danger for the Christian to have a higher view of their sin than of their Savior. We sometimes pinpoint certain things in our lives, things that we struggle with, things that seem to pop up over and over and over again in our lives, and and we exalt that in a way that seems bigger than Jesus. Yes, Jesus saved me from my sin. Jesus saved my soul. Jesus has promised me an eternity in heaven with him. But this sin, maybe it's just a little bit bigger than Jesus. But why do I keep struggling with this? Maybe Jesus isn't big enough to, 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 to defeat that, to get rid of that. Paul, Paul doesn't have that view of Jesus. We shouldn't think too lowly of Christ. We shouldn't have this small view of who Jesus is. John Newton, the, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, he wrote this in one of his pastoral letters. He says, I have sinned. I sin continually. But Christ has died and lives forever as my redeemer, priest, advocate, and king. And though my transgressions and my enemies are very many and very prevalent, the Lord in whom I trust is more and more than all that is against me. He's echoing Paul's thoughts of how big Jesus is. Your identity as a Christian, as a, the Church of Jesus Christ, is found in Christ and in his sin and death defeating work on the cross. Nowhere else. It's not found in our indwelling sin. It's not found in our problems. Our problems as the Church of Jesus Christ don't define as Jesus does. However big or small those problems may be, and we labor big and small sins, we labor big and small issues, but sin is sin, and Jesus is bigger than all of it. Hold firmly to the word I preach to you, the gospel, for what I received. Here it is in verse 3. Here's, here's the gospel we hold on to. Here's the gospel we take our stand on. The gospel that has a Savior that is bigger than sin Obviously, that would come with a priority level one tag on This thing would be of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, most of them fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, who appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What's the thing we stand on? What, what is our creed as the Christ of the Church of Jesus Christ? We say Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, Christ was seen. These, these four things that Paul decides in short to remind them of is the gospel. Paul says, this is the gospel that the Corinthians received. This is what Paul preached. This is what they have heard. They have heard it, they received, they received it, and they took their stand on it. 
According to Paul, standing on this truth, Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection, Christ being seen after the resurrection, and giving 500 witnesses that ministry, that gospel, that truth, you stand on that, that's going to prove to be greater than your sin. That will prove to be greater than the Corinthians' sin. Holding firm to this gospel means that their sin, and, and there, there was a lot, there are many sins that the Corinthian church has committed, and yet they stand on this truth, and your sin is still paid for. You are still in Christ. You are still in the church. He died for sins, not for no reason. Christ's death was specific in purpose. He was buried. Paul eliminates doubts about reinforcing the fact that he actually died. He was really dead. He was really buried. He was raised. Without the resurrection, the death and burial of Jesus is not part of the good news. We talk about the resurrection of Christ and in him I will rise. We will rise again on the last day because Jesus has risen. If there's no resurrection, we have no hope. This is important. This is big. And, and to hammer out any possible doubts, Paul says, he appeared to hundreds of people. This really happened. This is a real thing. People actually saw Jesus after he had been dead and buried. He was really dead, and he was really resurrected. And all of this took place according to the Scriptures. These events fulfill specific passages of Scripture. This is important because there are certain things that we, we, we pinpoint. We say, oh yeah, I see that verse and how it points to Jesus. Now Jesus fulfills this. Things like, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The disciples remembered after Jesus' resurrection that Jesus was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the temple that had taken uh, years to build. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Well, the words of Jesus predicting and explaining what he was going to do said this, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus said that, and that happened. There are specific things that we say Jesus fulfilled these passages. There are specific verses that are fulfilled in Jesus, but it's, it's bigger than that. It's more than that. And as, as we've seen over and over and over again, as we've walked through the Old Testament over the past number of months, there's a lot of typology, there's a lot of pictures, there's a lot of things that point forward to Jesus. There's the sacrificial system, the, the priesthood, the kingship, Sabbath rest, the, the list goes on and on and on of all these things that are good and great, but they leave you wanting more. They leave you wanting something just a little bit bigger and a little bit better. You read through the Old Testament and you're left wondering, what in the world is God going to do? One of the great questions that we've had to wrestle with walking through the Old Testament is how can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? How can we continue to, to let this go on? What can we do? What's left to do? What other options do we have? Paul says, according to the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, we're left wanting more, right? Last week we looked at Job. 
great. But we're left wanting more, right? Job's story isn't meant to comfort us. Jesus is. The fulfillment of all the longings we're left with in the Old Testament are found in Jesus and in his death and resurrection, the foundational building blocks of the gospel. Paul takes a couple of verses to give details concerning the people that Christ appeared to after the resurrection. He actually lists quite a few people. There's Cephas, that's Peter, and the twelve. Over 500 individuals at once. They're not named. There's lots of them. There's James, Jesus' brother, and the apostles. Then Paul includes himself, one abnormally born. It's an odd phrase. It's one that isn't necessarily used a lot, abnormally born. But Paul explains what he means in the next verse. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He's abnormal, he's different, because he was a persecutor of the church. He's the last one the risen Savior appears to. Last of all, he appeared to me. And something unique about Paul is that he's the only person listed here. There's Peter, there's James, there's the apostles, there's the twelve, there's the five hundred people at once. Paul's the only one listed here who was not a believer when the Lord appeared to him. James and Peter, these guys, they had followed Jesus and they had put their faith and trust in Jesus. And Jesus appears to them and says, yes, I'm actually the fulfillment of what you were longing for. Paul was going in a different direction. Paul's abnormal because he was actually fighting against the gospel through which he now preaches. Does this give Paul a reason to boast? Does this prop him up in some way because he's so different? Or is he special compared to the others because he was a persecutor? Not at all, because he says in verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. By God's grace. What turns a persecutor of the church into uh, a promoter of the gospel? What turns a mocker into a missionary? What, what radically changes a guy like Paul who is dead set on his mission to destroy the church of Jesus Christ? What turns that around? His willpower? His smarts? No, he, he says... It's all of God's grace. Paul claims nothing in himself for the track that he's now on. He says it is God's grace and God's grace alone. I am what I am. We often misuse that phrase, don't we? Well, maybe you, of course you don't misuse that phrase. You're better than that. But other people misuse that phrase. We use it or in, a, in a take it or leave it sense, right? I am what I am and if you don't like me then go away. It's your problem to deal with. I am what I am. That's not at all what Paul is communicating here. I am what I am because of the grace of God. I used to act and think one way, and Paul's train of thought in pursuing the church of Jesus Christ to put them in jail, to persecute them, to stone them, to kill the church to radically change that frame of mind, to radically change that train of thought, only happens by God's grace. It only comes about, that change only happens because God steps in and is gracious towards the individual. 
I used to be a certain person and live a certain way, but that's changed. That's different. I don't do that anymore. Not because of my willpower, not because I, I learned something that I didn't learn before, I got a little bit smarter and a little bit better, but because of God's grace. That's always Paul's thrust of his message, where whatever letter you pick up in, Sometimes we ridicule fellow believers for not being as holy as they ought, for not being as close to Jesus as they should be. They don't look quite like Jesus in a way that I look like Jesus. Or they're not, they're not quite there yet. Yeah, they're coming along, but they're not, they're not quite there. And yet how many times do we fail to recognize the grace of God in a person's life, even if it looks small compared to other Christians. We, we sometimes start comparing grace as if grace was this spiritual currency that God hands out and you've got more grace than somebody else and so, you know, you're a little bit closer to Jesus than this person. As if that's how that worked. Some people's lives are seemingly stacked against them in a way that it seems impossible that they would hold on to Jesus at all and yet they do. Why? What makes somebody in spite of all the storms in this life, what makes them hang on to Jesus? What makes somebody who's got everything, this world just basically bombarding them with so many different things, whether it's losing their job or losing their house or losing their family or whatever it is, why does somebody hang on to Jesus in spite of all of that? It's because of God's grace. Paul says he worked harder than all of the other apostles. He identified himself as the least of the apostles, undeserving of the title, but God's grace changed him. And God's grace worked with him. This is not meant to be seen as Paul bragging as if he's better than the other apostles because he worked harder. That's another thing we sometimes do, right? I work a little bit harder than you, therefore I'm a better Christian than you. I've got a little bit more grace, I'm a little bit more spiritual because... Maybe I, I work better than you. I do a little bit more than you. Paul's not doing that. He didn't just get too excited and caught up in remembering all that he's done and he starts over-graduating or bragging. Paul understands who he used to be. Paul knows that he, he is actually undeserving of the title of apostle. He's undeserving to be in the church of Jesus Christ. He's undeserving to be a Christian because he persecuted the church, let alone an apostle and, and a leader of the church now. He gets that. He knows what the grace of God has done in his life. He hasn't forgotten that. Paul understands how much he has been forgiven. I believe what Paul is communicating here is similar to the thought that is summarized in the words of the hymn that says, Jesus paid it all all to him I owe. I think that's what Paul is trying to, to tell the Corinthian church here, is Jesus has paid an incredible debt that I owed to him. I, I was literally the worst of the worst, persecuting the church, and, and Jesus turned me around, not because there was something in me, but because of God's grace. And because of that, I owe it all to Jesus. That's just the logical next step. What else could you do? Jesus erased my debt. I owe my life to him now. It's what Jesus is communicating in, in Luke chapter 7. Remember when Jesus asked the question, there were two men who owed a debt. One owed five and one owed fifty. 
neither of them could pay. And Jesus says, they were both forgiven that debt. Erased, done, done. They didn't have to pay that back. And he says, which one would have had a greater appreciation for the debt for women? And the disciples say, well, the one who owed more. And Jesus says, yeah. The more you've been forgiven, it would seem the more you appreciate your debt that's been paid. The greater the debt that's been forgiven, the greater the love the forgiven person has for the one who's forgiven them. Now, the reality is, is that all of us, yes, at different stages of our lives, yes, at different stages in our walks with Jesus Christ, but if we're honest, we've all been forgiven a great debt. Your sin against the Holy God is great, no matter what boxes you check off. But our level of commitment, how hard we work for the Lord, will communicate our view of how bad we thought our sin was. Right? What I mean is, although we, we don't want to have a higher view of sin in our Savior, although we want Jesus to be in His proper place and greater than our sin, that doesn't mean we should diminish how great our sin actually was. We sometimes don't have a proper understanding of how big our debt actually is. There is grace that is greater than all our sin. We can also amen to that, right? But do you know how bad your sin actually was? And it is. Do you know how vile and repugnant your sin is before a holy God? Do you recognize how great your debt was and how much you've been forgiven? Because if you have a proper understanding of how big your sin is, of how bad of a debt you are in, how big of a hole you created for yourself, if you recognize that and Jesus still pays them, that gives him more glory. That, that exalts him in a way that I, I couldn't pay my debt. My family couldn't pay my debt. My city, my country, right in the whole world, combined together could pay the debt for one individual before Jesus Christ and Jesus could. Jesus did. It magnifies Jesus in a way when our sin isn't diminished to the point of being nothing. It's not really that big a deal. It really was a big deal because Jesus came, Jesus died, He was buried, He was resurrection, resurrected and seen for that sin. It was a big deal. And Jesus paid it all. The church at Corinth had a great debt needing to be forgiven. And they had a lot of stuff to work through. But they had a Savior bigger than all of these sins. They had a Savior who couldn't be stopped by their big mess of the church. Paul says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul's point is not to brag about who works harder than who. This isn't something that we're supposed to take and then start evaluating ourselves and putting up this, this chart that says who works better than somebody else and who's got more stuff compared to, who's got more spiritual blessings and spiritual gifts and who's doing more for the Lord. That's not what he's trying to do. And we're not supposed to... I remember in youth group hearing different testimonies about people who uh, were saved from a whole lot of stuff. They were into drugs and alcohol and they were at rock bottom and they had nothing left. Their family had abandoned them and all these things. And, and Jesus saved me and turned my life around and here I am, my 13-year-old kid born in a Christian home. My dad's a pastor. My grandfather's a pastor. And, and the temptation was to point at these people and go, wow, Jesus, Jesus did a great work in their lives. 
Jesus had to, had to do some pretty heavy stuff, heavy lifting on the part of those individuals. And, and, and failed to see that just as much grace was needed in my life to keep me from those things. Paul's point is not to start evaluating whose debt was bigger and, and who got into more trouble before Jesus got a hold of them. Paul's point, Paul's hard work was an effect of God's grace. Always God's grace. He always comes back to that. Paul's display of work in his apostleship is not to be understood as his own abilities or his own efforts or things that were inherently found within him that God just needed so badly so he decided to save Paul so that he could make use of those things. No, it was God's grace. God's grace working in Paul. Verse 11, Paul gets back on track with his original thought. He kind of got off on a side tangent here. He was originally reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that they take their stand on and kind of went off on a sidetrack and got distressed in God's grace in his own life, which might tell us something about how exciting it is and how maybe our evangelism and witnessing should go. When you start explaining what the gospel is, when you start explaining what grace looks like in the life of an individual. This is what God can do for you. How do I know? Because look at what God has done for me. Look at how he's turned me around. Look at how he's changed my life. Look at what I would be into and I'm not because of Jesus. Look at what I used to be into and yeah, I've still got a long way to go. But there's grace there. I'm moving towards Jesus Christ. Maybe that tells us something about our lack of remembrance when we tell the gospel. He goes off on that side tangent, but then gets back on track. Whether then it is I or they, that is, the apostles, the twelve, this is what we preach, and this is what we believe. The gospel. These four things, these four points about Jesus. The early Christian leaders, Peter, James, Paul, the twelve, the apostles, they are consistently proclaiming the cross and resurrection of Jesus as central to the gospel. These things aren't just Paul's ideas. They aren't just the hobby horse that Paul rides wherever he goes. This is what everyone is preaching. It's the heart of the gospel. The gospel Paul preached to the Corinthians is the same gospel preached by James and Peter in Jerusalem and in Athens and in Ephesus. It's the same gospel wherever they go. He's not changing his tune just for the Corinthians. It's not like he's being heavy-handed with the death and resurrection of Jesus just with these guys. This is the whole message. This is all that there is. This is all that they need to hear. The gospel that they preached was not merely a good idea. It was a historical fact. It was something that they, they heard. They saw Jesus. They walked with Jesus. It's a historical fact that they saw the resurrected Savior they were all witnesses to the resurrection. Paul's explaining here that the resurrection is not merely, merely a Pauline theme. The resurrection is central to all of their preaching, and it should be central in all of our preaching. However we do that. Not that we all preach in this sense, but in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, in our personal conversations with friends and family and co-workers. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is why you're here this morning. Jesus
Jesus died and rose again, and that's why you're here. That's why you come to sing praises to our Heavenly Father. The resurrection is your life. Not just that it's given you life and given you eternal life. Yes, that's true. But it defines everything that you do, or should. It is the defining point of who we are as Christians. So what? We, we know that, right? We, we, we've heard this before. First Corinthians 15, many of us have read this before. And all of this isn't new stuff. We know the resurrection is infinitely important. We know God's grace is great, and it's greater than our sin. We know we're not perfect people. Yes, we get that. We know that Jesus is working on us. We know our faith is rooted in God's word, and, and it's been supported by eyewitness accounts. We know that we're not standing on something that's flimsy. We stand on a solid rock. None of this, for most of us, is new stuff. We've all heard this before. And it actually wasn't anything the Corinthian church hadn't heard before either. When does Paul take the time to do this? Verse 1 says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached, the gospel you received, the gospel you stand on. Paul is reminding them. Why does he take the time to remind them of this after rebuking them for all the junk that they've got in their lives? Why would he do that? Amelia, our daughter Amelia, she loves her little sister, who's about a month old now. She loves giving her blankets and stuffed animals. She loves giving her a scooter when she's fussy and rocking the car seat. She loves giving her hugs and kisses. And when we first brought Naomi home, we had to tell him to be careful with her. We had to remind her to do certain things. Be gentle. Don't squeeze too hard. Don't drop toys on her head. Don't sit on her. I actually had to say that. And don't sit on your sister. We had to remind her to be gentle as she was smothering her with a blanket. But our reminders to her have changed in the past couple of weeks. There used to be reminders of rebuke. Reminders of don't do that. We don't do things that way. We do things this way. But now they've changed a little. It used to be a reminder to stop what she was doing while she was doing it. And now I find myself still saying the same thing, still reminding her of the same thing. Even when she's gently stroking Amy's cheek and gently giving her a kiss, and she's being very, very gentle. She's being a, being a, a loving, caring older sister. She's not doing the thing she's not supposed to do. She's actually doing what we've been telling her to do for a month. But I still find myself saying it. And be gentle. And that's very nice. That's pretty good of you. Thank you. You're being very nice, very kind. But yes, you should be doing those things. It's no longer a reminder of rooted in rebuke. It's a reminder of affirmation. It's a reminder of this is what we do. This is who we are. This is how we act as a family. This is how we treat our baby sister. This, this is what we do. Constant reminders. That, that's how she got to that point. That's how she got to the point of treating her sister the way that she was supposed to. That's how she got to the point of loving her sister the way that she was supposed to. Constant reminders. How do we get to the point of working hard like the Apostle Paul? How do we grow in our faith? How do we become more useful in gospel ministry? 
How do we evangelize more effectively? How do we slowly but surely cut out all of the garbage that's in our lives and press on to know Jesus Christ? How do we do that? The Corinthians had a lot of garbage to cut out. We do too, even if we don't admit it. They had a lot of growing to do. And the point has never been to argue over who is more like Jesus. The point of Christian life has never been to exalt any of us higher than anybody else. Some have been walking with Jesus for 50 years, others for 5 years, 5 days, 5 weeks. And the fact that any one of us has taken steps towards Jesus is precisely because of the grace of God in our lives. It doesn't matter what stage in your walk with Jesus Christ, if you're walking with Him, you're walking with Him because of grace. People grow in faith, grow in grace, at different stages, different speeds, in different ways, by hearing this constant reminder, by going back to these things that Paul thought were so important to remind the Corinthian church. Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, according to the scriptures. He was raised to life on the third day, according to the scriptures. And I tell you this truth, I am not lying. There are hundreds of people who saw him after he rose from the dead, and this all happened according to the scriptures, to the Bible. We were supposed to be expecting this. Jesus is the expected long, long awaited, the thing we've been waiting for while reading this whole book. Jesus is it. This is what's been proclaimed to you. This is what you've heard and received. This is what you have believed. Hang on to that. Hold firmly to that. Stand on that. And if you remind yourself of that each and every day, that changes the way that you live. I was talking to some friends yesterday. I was at a bachelor party for a buddy of mine. We went paintballing and shot the heck out of each other. It was a lot of fun. But then we, we, on the way back to the restaurant, we went to the restaurant and we went back to a friend's house. And on the way back, we got talking about some stuff. Theological stuff. It's funny how you can shoot each other and then start talking about Jesus on the way home. I'm not sure what that says, but we got, we got discussing about the grace in our lives and, and, and the way in which God's been working in our own hearts and lives. And I was thinking about this passage and how the resurrection changes everything and how the resurrection and the grace of Jesus Christ in my life is literally the, the defining point for who I am and how many mornings I wake up in the morning and don't remember that. How many, how many times do I wake up in the morning and don't thank the Lord for the breath that He's given me? How many times do I get up and don't thank God that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Because that's the reason I do things. That's the reason I get up in the morning. But I don't thank Him for it. I don't thank God for the grace in my life each and every day, each and every moment. But you know what? That's the reason we're here. That's the reason we get up in the morning. But we fail to recognize it. So Paul reminds us, this is who you are. This is who God is. This is what you stand on. Christ's death and resurrection. This is what you have believed. Hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. We need to hang on to this, don't we? It's not new news. For many of us, 
you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years, you've been hearing this for 50 years, and you need to hear it for the rest of it too. We need to constantly hear this reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us in his death and resurrection. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and we'll finish with a closing song.